millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Skylines is brought to you by 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social and economic challenges of the 21st century. You can find out more at 100resilientcities.org. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Stephanie, and this week we're talking about the North. The next train to arrive at Platform 1 is the 0750 Northern service to Newcastle. Calling at Thornaby, Eaglescliff, Allens West, Teesside Airport, Dinsdale, I want you to know that I resisted the urge to do a northern accent after that and say something really patronising, like, I don't know, like Aup or Mad For It or... Please, no, continue, this is great. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of those other things. I mean, I've just I've just spent the afternoon being accused of um, patronising Liverpool, so, on Twitter, so that's Why have my you been goes. accused of patronising Liverpool, John? I mean, like, there are things I could have done better. I think, actually, it was the mismatch of... Hang on, roll it back Start. A bit. I was in Liverpool for the uh, Labour Party conference and I spent a lot of it wandering around Liverpool because, you know, cities are my thing. And I wrote a kind of fairly quick response piece to like, you know, this is sort of, the, here are all the thoughts I had on kind of the structure and the economics of Liverpool and so on. And it's, it's, you know, I, I wrote at the top, you know, this is just, this is a first draft of a brain fart rather than like an academic thesis or anything. And I kind of knew I was on risky ground here. So what are your thoughts about Liverpool? Because I find it quite a weird city to walk around in because I'm from Manchester and to me it's kind of similar but different. So yeah. what was your sense of it? I think, yeah, no, I think there are very definite parallels between the two. I mean, like in different ways, but I think like they both have the same vibe of being like, I think they're both great is my first response, actually. I really, really like both cities in a way that I actually don't. With every, There are cities in this country I go to and I think, oh, is that it? Whereas, like, both <laughs> are you going to name them or is that... I'm probably best off not naming <laughs> them. I mean, I'm already alienated Liverpool. So. But no, they've both got wonderful architecture and this sort of grandeur and they both feel like they feel like proper real places they don't feel like they're looking over their shoulders sort of grumbling at london like these are these are major cities right 
But at the same time, like it's obviously true that neither of them uh, are in their sort of glory days. And like, I think they're both bouncing back. I think Manchester's ahead of the curve on that one. But I think they're both, they're both a lot better than they were 20, 30 years ago. But the main thing I got wandering around Liverpool is just, I went to the, to the, the History Museum there. And one of the big displays is about the history of the Liverpool docks. And this sounds like an incredibly stupid thing to say. I just kind of, I knew this, but I'd not quite grasped the full import of it. But like, oh yeah, Liverpool, the only reason a million people lived here is because there aren't jobs unloading ships. That is literally the reason there is a major city here. And in the past 50 years, those jobs have all gone because even though there's still like a major port in Liverpool, it now employs far fewer people, containerization and so on. So like, no wonder this is a city that struggled a bit in the last 50 years and is now t- trying to find a new purpose and I think you know there is a similar narrative in Manchester I think Manchester has kind of managed to switch the services a bit earlier I think they're both great places but yeah I think the the inherent dangers of being a, a southerner sort of writing a slightly ill-informed piece about a northern city based on a lot of theory and three days wandering around combined with my inherent snark is probably not the best combination so i was i wrote something that i thought was i was trying to be nice about liverpool but and i got some very nice responses to it but there were people out there who didn't think i was being nice and i just spent this afternoon arguing with one of them so anyway on our podcast about the north i've just basically been given a lecture in my my estuary accent so do you want to talk about the north a bit given that you're from the north (laughs) i was want to go from the north well, yeah, but it's an interesting point you raise about that kind of sense of identity of post-industrial cities and how you reinvent yourself with that. And I think it's actually something Manchester's been very lucky in. I think there's been a lot of resources poured in. I think the BBC and Media City are so important. But I think also Manchester's been very lucky in that it kind of had a culture ready to be appropriated by those things. So you had a rave culture, you had factory records, you had a kind of, you know, moving six music sort of made sense with the city's cultural legacy. And I think you're starting to see that in Liverpool. I was up there this summer for a conference during the biennial and you could see again people sort of going back to that sense of the city's culture during those years of industrial decline and try and see how they could make it work in this century and there's encouraging stuff in both places it's similar in Glasgow you've got kind of an art scene that's starting to define a city that was defined by sea trade so you do get the the sense of these places being on the up and particularly when I'm in Manchester that is the feeling I have I mean it is a weird uncanny experience to take the metro line to media city if you you know spent some years out of Manchester like I have but it's fantastic it's great to see kind of new industries moving in it's great to see companies going there um i'm this is going to be controversial i'm quite pro hs2 um oh go on then (laughs) well it's not my priority i think you need better rail links across the north but also i think you should be able to get to london as fast as possible for a meeting and then go back okay i'm also pro hs2 but for different reasons like it's because actually it's about capacity and the fact the rail network is going to break if we don't start building some new lines and it's just kind of sexier to say high speed but it is already pretty quick. I mean, like, it's only, it's just over two hours to both of these cities. That's really not that far from London. It's true, but the Virgin Pendolino makes me really, really travel sick. It does also smell of sewage. It does smell of sewage. How was your train up to party conference? Did you 
Tell, tell me about travelling to Liverpool. It was fine. It didn't smell too badly of sewage. Oh, actually, the best thing, possibly the single best thing that happened to me in the whole of Party Conference was I met someone who does marketing for Virgin and she has an app which tells you which Virgin trains have the most unreserved seats on so you can plan your journeys. Can the general public get this app? I don't think they can. This was a so, yeah, I mean, that was frankly far more interesting than anything that I actually learned at Party Conference. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and convince them to let me ride up front with a driver and I will write something about it. But we'll, we'll see. Coming soon to Metric, hopefully. But there, there is an interesting point in that, in that connections between the North can be quite shoddy. The number of times I've changed trains at Crewe and just been stood on the platform. And Crewe's a fine station, but... This was kind of the heart of the whole Northern Powerhouse thing, which may or may not have been totally forgotten about with the change of government, but just the idea of like improving connections between the big northern cities, because they're really not that far apart, are they? Like Manchester is like 30 miles or so from Liverpool and Leeds and Sheffield, and that's a pretty big agglomeration if you kind of connect them all together. I mean, it's 30 miles from one side of London to the other. No, so. and which perfectly makes sense if you think of them as post-industrial cities. If you think of these as places where industry happened, obviously it makes sense that they were relatively close together. Well, supply chain, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they had to be connected. I mean, Liverpool was literally the docks for the rest of the north, effectively. Right, and where, where I'm from in Lancashire, it's mills. Um, yeah. It, you know, right. everyone that used to be a mill town, and now it's kind of... Can you bring in digital industry to somewhere where, up until relatively recently, it was everyone working in factories? So something else that happened at Labour Conference was I met the leader of Preston Council at a fringe meeting, and he was complaining, he's trying to get a Lancashire devolution deal happening, and he says it's quite difficult to kind of consolidate the bits of Lancashire outside the, the major cities into kind of a coherent unit which I thought was really interesting because on the other side of the Pennines, the Yorkshire identity sort of dominates the cities in it. So like on one side, you've got Lancashire feels sort of overwhelmed by Liverpool and Manchester. And on the other side, Leeds and Sheffield get overwhelmed by Yorkshire. And I, I've no idea why it should have fallen out like that. It is interesting. I mean, I, I understand the Liverpool-Manchester thing and I... You know, I'm sure people will write in and tell me that I'm wrong, but I think that's especially because... Especially Liverpudlians. Yeah, yeah, especially Liverpudlians. If you're Mancunian, you have to back me up. I don't care if you know better. But I think that's because there was a ship canal built, so there became a bit of a trade rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool, and they're both Irish immigrant populations, and it kind of became not so much the vanity of small difference, but the arms race of small difference. <laughs> um and then obviously there's a football rivalry there, whereas I think of places in rural Lancashire in a completely different way. I know my partner's from kind of Blackburn way, and it's just, to him, Manchester is a completely different culture to where he grew up, even though obviously those places have a lot in common. So that's the urban-rural divide, really, isn't it? It's just, it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he thinks I'm kind of a big city girl, and I think he's a bumpkin who can't talk properly. Yeah, well, I mean, neither of you are wrong, so... Yeah, no, it's true. I hope Colin doesn't listen to this. But I am interested about Yorkshire. Well, yeah, because my cousins are from Yorkshire and Leeds is definitely, they go out in Leeds, but it's not like I think of places not that far from Manchester as being very different to Manchester City proper. Are we talking like other places within the conurbation or towns outside it? Or? I think towns outside it, although the accents do shift quite quickly as well. So a, a kind of urban Mancunian accent sounds a lot less Lancashire than a Middleton accent, which is where my family are from. You know, there is actually a, that kind of saying, I'm going to do it terribly now, but kind of saying city, that's very 
city-centric. Can I just say, I really enjoyed you doing a bad Manchester accent. Yeah, no, I know, I can't, but I can't do it because my family don't don't say that. That's a very kind of focused on the urban centre. I have a secret Essex accent, which I can't can't do of my own accord, but like if someone asked me the the time at three o'clock in the morning in a darkened street, I was speaking like proper Romford English because I just kind of automatically click into it, but I can't make it happen. It's weird. If you are listening to this and you know John in real life, this is your task. To bring out the Essex Hulk, John. It's get, get me drunk. Also, um, Sarah mocks me that I, 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 again, this is not deliberate, but I do sometimes use that voice with tradespeople. <laughs> if we've got a plumber in or something, or I start dropping on my consonants. But this is an interesting thing, and this is an interesting thing about the North, is that you have a huge loss of talent from the north it's something you can't really avoid and I definitely when I'm up north I'm southern and when I'm down south people think I'm northern there is that strangeness of kind of an identity which is half based around you know I don't really know anyone back in Manchester now I think most people have moved to London certainly all of my cousins now live in London that's so depressing isn't it it is depressing but it's basically an internal brain drain there was a report out from the Centre for Cities last week, which is their, their supporters of ours we're going to be writing quite a lot about. But it sort of compared the economics of Britain's cities with those in the continent. It looked at, I think, 62 British cities, of which only five are in the top, I think, 25% of European economies. Those are all in, it's like, you know, four southern English cities and Aberdeen are doing right and basically everywhere else is below the European average. It was not, yeah, it's not top 25, it's top 50%. It's dreadful. Like, if you look, they, they've got a map and it's just the, the northern and western English cities are just a different colour. It's the same colour you get in East Germany because that's the level of productivity. Right? We've basically got, like, an Eastern European country with Singapore in one corner, economically speaking. And I don't understand why this isn't a source of national shame. Like, why are we not all really angry about this all the time? I know people are because they tell me they are, but, like, I don't understand why this isn't such a, a constant point in the political debate that we've let the country get this divided. Yeah, no, it's, it is it is horrendous. And when you... Go and fix it. You've, you've lived in both <laughs> ends of the country. You're clever. Fix it. But, but so this is the thing, is that I go, would I move back? You know, there's this beautiful flat in Deansgate, two bedrooms, £600 a month, gorgeous, high rise, you're near Media City, you're near the city centre, there's, you know, they're beautiful old converted warehouses. They're the kind of thing I would have to sell a kidney and my soul to rent in London. Um, but if I went back, everyone I know is in London. And there's that kind of, I, I think it... It's a brain drain. Yeah, basically. no, but there's... A, there's a sense of kind of exponentialism to it, where once everyone you know is left. Yeah, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're not going to fix it then? I will. I will try and think of something by next week. Okay. okay cool. So yeah, as I mentioned, the Centre for Cities have been very big supporters of ours, and you know we love those guys. And I finally decided it's time to listen to their whinging and let some of them come on the podcast. They're northern too. This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A Express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. I'm here with our mates at the Centre Cities. We've got Ben Harrison, who is from Newcastle. And we've got Paul Swinney, who is from Sunderland. As a lifelong Londoner and 
you know, all-round patronising person. I kind of assume those two are the same place, aren't they? Oh, like, oh, I mean, extremely like, controversial. You want to be careful next time you've got a zone two, John Sin, things like that. Well, that doesn't happen very often, so <laughs> probably fine. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, like, they're part of the same urban area. Like, if you look at a map without knowing anything about the kind of cultural background and so on, you would assume that Sunderland was basically a suburb of Newcastle rather than a separate place. It's even on the same metro, right? So... Why does the kind of difference in, in the two cities' identities actually matter? I, I think it's because it's, it would be a lot... I think actually the confusion was the way around, that actually if you looked from the air and you didn't have an understanding of, of how things were, actually you would think Newcastle was a suburb of Sunderland. So I think actually, you know, how this has come about is, you know, the Geordie nation has thought, right, OK, we have to make sure this is not the case and try and sort of instill some sort of, sort of hierarchy. So that's why it, it persists, I would say. What do you think, Ben? See, I think what, you know, you've just demonstrated very early, Paul, there is the kind of thing which is holding back, not just some, <laughs> but potentially the wider northeast of England as you get into this sort of petty parochialism <laughs> uh, and one-upmanship, when actually, as John quite rightly says, you know, the, when you look at the, the facts and the evidence and the stats, and remember, that's what the centre for cities is all about, uh, clearly Newcastle is the primary uh, <laughs> urban area, driver of economic growth, etc., uh, in the northeast of England. The fact that Sunderland feels the need to attach itself to that, <laughs> while understandable, is, is probably unfortunate from your perspective. <laughs> I don't know, does it try to attach it? always seems that it's, it's spending many, many, a lot of time trying to separate those two things. No, well, I mean, and that's, that's very true. There is clearly a, a kind of love-hate or set of tensions where, um, you know, there are, there are repeated efforts to, to think about uh, and talk about the northeast of England as one place. Yeah. And then clearly within the northeast yeah. of England, there are a bunch of different identities, uh, some of which have just come out, uh, you know, immediately at the start of the podcast. <laughs> It's the big irony of it, I suppose, actually, what you hit on there, Ben, is, is that when the North East wants to talk to the rest of the country, it always wants to be talking about a region, it's the North East, and actually that, quite often when people talk about that, they actually include the Tees Valley as well, whereas now with local enterprise partnerships, the two areas are separate, but the thing about the whole area, and yet... Actually, when you get a little bit beneath that, there's so much tribalism sort of within the northeast, and there's quite this sort of peculiar sort of contrast that you get. Where we're seeing in Greater Manchester, actually, you don't ever get Manchester saying it's part of the northwest, and yet at the same time, you don't really seem to get that much infighting. But I don't know whether that's in part to do with its history. That's actually been Manchester pitted against Liverpool rather than perhaps Manchester's some more of its as close neighbours. Well, let's let's talk about the history a bit because. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, in the jokes aside, Newcastle is the dominant partner. It's the one with a, for want of a better word, it's the one with a better brand. It's the one on the main links to to London in one direction, Edinburgh in the other. It's the one people are more likely to have heard of. Like, people know about the Geordie identity, but they don't know about the Mackham identity. I wasn't kidding. I genuinely didn't realise until I was writing about this stuff (laughs) that quite how separate those two things were. Yeah. So why is Newcastle? Was it always the dominant city? Does this go back a long way? Well, the story goes, oh, well, actually, it's not just a story, I think it is what happened, was that um, it was King Charles I that granted uh, Newcastle a charter to export coal, and it could have been either Sunderland or Newcastle, but actually only granted to Newcastle, and I think uh, from there, actually, that sort of that drove a lot of growth in Newcastle because all of a sudden there's all this coal coming through, there's all sort of the money that can be made off the back of trading that uh, and became very much a, a port off the back of it, whereas uh, Sunderland obviously couldn't benefit from that because it didn't have a royal decree. So I think Sunderland's growth was a little bit later. It was certainly when it came about when, uh, when shipbuilding started to expand, when, um, when coal mining sort of within sort of the, the old Sunderland border 
sort of went on a great ascent and it was from there that Sunderland started to grow and I'm sure at some point then that Royal Charter didn't, have, didn't sort of hold up anymore and Sunderland could export coal and indeed start to make money off it but that's I think where it goes back to uh, so it shows the, the, the very important uh, role that public intervention plays us in Picking winners isn't it? <laughs> I mean just as an aside I do find it slightly mind-blowing that we, we had an essay on, on this not that long ago I find it slightly mind-blowing that the new the northeast's growth did come off the back of coal, but centuries ago, it's long before the industrial revolution. In, in Newcastle became a regional hub specifically to supply London with coal in yeah. like the seventeenth century, which is kind of the London dominance goes back far further than we we think it does sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. But then at the same time, as you know, research we've done and Paul's led on about the last hundred years of, of economic change has kind of shown. Equally, the, the, the benefits of the growth of London, you know, aren't just kept within the London area either. So, I mean, you know, a key driver of Newcastle growth throughout its history has been its relationships with London and the links with London, as you rightly identify, you know, it's got um, the direct train line down in, into London. So actually, you know, and maybe we'll come on to this in a bit, that the extent to which these things, these um, relationships or competitive elements between cities are zero-sum games, I think is, is you know, is definitely debatable. Let's kind of get back to some criminal. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When did the the two cities and kind of the other places in, in what later became time and where start to kind of merge into a single conurbation? Was that a 19th century thing, do we hear? Yeah, I don't know. I think to some extent... Uh, I mean, politically speaking, it was, what, 1974, yeah. I think, when there was local government reorganisation that uh, Tyne and Wee was created. Uh, some people would still say that actually Tyne and Wee doesn't really exist, no, exactly. uh, which is quite interesting. I think you still get this very much a cultural divide. In terms of sort of tra- travel patterns and things like that, I mean, imagine you know, the, the rise of the car and things like that will have helped. 
uh, I think sort of the the growth of Newcastle in terms of professional services and then uh, Nissan coming into Sunderland in the 1980s will have encouraged a greater sort of flow of, or, of people in between. But I think, you know, certainly up until the end of the Second World War, you would have seen that actually they still would have been very separate. Mm. Actually, a lot of uh, working patterns of people going to the shipyards, either on the Tyne or the Weir, or going to the to the coal mines, and I don't think they would have been probably travelling very far on that. So I definitely think it's a second half of the twentieth century where you start to see sort of these greater patterns. But still, I mean, having said that, I think you know you still do see certainly that cultural divide still remains. Our cultural exactly. difference still remains. I mean, just partly why I hesitate on your question there, John. The word single conurbation instinctively, emotionally, just don't feel quite right <laughs> to me when we're kind of talking about it. You know, they are. Um, you know, certainly from from growing up in the area, uh, and even then, from I think following through in the analysis we do at the centre, you know, are they are distinct and separate places, um, even if there are links between them from an economic and, and cultural perspective. I'm, I'm showing my ignorance here, but how much space is there between them? Because my understanding was that there really wasn't much to speak of. The, yeah, I mean, the distance is about. Is it 18 miles or something like that? It's about 10. I looked this up specifically to troll you on Twitter. <laughs> but saying that Sunderland was just the Geordie Croydon. Well, I mean, there's just so much to disagree with on that point, isn't it? First off, we don't talk funny from Sunderland, so it can't be like Croydon. There's a green belt in place. Uh, it's not particularly wise, no. uh, and it, I suppose it depends where you draw the the boundaries of Newcastle. But I mean, that's the I suppose that's the element of having you know development all the way down the time because of shipyards historically that you've got you go from Newcastle to places like uh, Jarrow or Jarrow, as you tend to say a little bit more locally through South Shields. Actually, sort of this sort of urban spread there, and then you've got like a little bit of a distance bet- difference between. Um, uh, South Tyneside and then in Sunderland, but actually there's not a huge amount of, uh, of difference, but there's sort of like a, a small ridge, I suppose, in between the two. But if you get on the metro from uh, from Newcastle and go through to Sunderland, um, which I'm sure many people do every day, you, sort of, you, you look out and it is sort of a lot of urban sprawl, particularly going through South Tyneside, because it's a history of you know, well, development all the way along the Tyne, because you know, people were jostling for, for space to build ships, and I think that sort of like helped that spread. But that, the, the two places still are distinct from a built-up urban area point of view but I think in part that's because of the maintenance of a very small strip of green belt mm. uh, between the two mm. you think if, if events have been left to take their course they probably would have grown together by now they might well have might well have a little bit like as you see with, with Bradford and Leeds to some extent yeah, quite. Um, so it, it could be that it's a case of, of, of government regulation has, uh, has kept the two apart mm. well I mean let's, let's kind of, sort of broaden the conversation out you mentioned Bradford and Leeds it seems to me that one of the, there are many, but one of the differences between those conurbations in Britain that have um, been more successful or kind of taking control of their own destiny and those that haven't is that the ones that have done best at kind of gaining some power from the government, which are you know, London and Manchester on any measure, they don't have these arguments. Like, like in Manchester, even like Wigan, which, which is quite separate and quite a long way away, has accepted its destiny as tied up with being part of the Greater Manchester Conurbation, and they've just gone on with it. And that's not true of the other big cities, is it? And I, I, think, I think, I mean, to a degree, I think that's, that's right. Although I, I think, it, you know, you shouldn't underestimate just because in Greater Manchester and Greater London they're very good at 
organising themselves and almost hiding the wiring to to a degree. Mm. Imagine that the kinds of conversations and disagreements that go on in Yorkshire or in the northeast of England or in other parts of the country uh, don't happen because they do. Um, as yeah. I say, they are just far better at, at organising themselves. They've managed to over a number of years. Uh, develop institutional frameworks to kind of manage those processes far better uh, than has been the case in other parts of the country, even where progress has been made in the West Midlands, uh, for example, over over the last um, few years. So I I would say to a degree those kind of tensions are are universal. It's just some places have been able to kind of get on top of them slightly better, um, either through consistent political leadership uh, or because the build-up environment helps them do that. You know, it's clear. You know, there's a more clear kind of uh, place geography to Greater Manchester and to uh, Greater London than perhaps there is in the northeast of England mm-hmm. or in or in, mm-hmm. in Yorkshire, where you have a more multipolar uh, model of growth. Yeah, and that's it, isn't it? It's the multipolar element too. So historically, it's been Manchester against. Uh, pit against Liverpool or Leeds or those other big places whereas those places around Manchester like your Wiggins for example have been their fortunes have always been hitched on the performance of Manchester because of the way the cotton industry worked whereas in uh, in Sunderland and Newcastle for example they were both building ships they were both producing coal and actually probably have always been pitched against each other and that difference in size has never been as accentuated as what you've got in Manchester so I think culturally there's been a it's been something that's been much easy to get on board with that actually you would be wanting to think of these these places as one but I think that's where you get an interesting distinction because when we get into discussions about devolution we're very much talking about the economy and we're talking about trying to pass powers down or apply powers across a geography that people live and work their lives over in order hopefully by doing that actually improve the the job opportunities that that everybody has the amount of money that everybody has in their pockets and that's very distinct I think from a from sort of a from a cultural cultural identity type thing. So when we're talking about devolution, we're not talking about okay making all these all these individual places sort of just one unit. We're just talking about trying to govern them better. We're talking about trying to have policy which which better responds to their challenges. That doesn't mean you can't still be uh, Wolverhampton within Greater Birmingham, or you can't be a Sunderland within sort of a, a, a northeast context. You know you can still have that cultural identity while having sort of this this different approach in terms of a, uh, an economy point of view. Does that mean that? There are many reasons why there isn't a West Yorkshire uh, metro and they're going to happen. But one of them, it seems to me, is that they just couldn't get it together to agree, OK, this is us, this is outside, and just whatever disagreements we have, we'll keep those behind closed doors, and this is the united front we put in front of the world. Is that historically inevitable? Because Leeds and Bradford have always been not quite on a level, but not far off. I mean, it's... As you say, there's a lot of reasons why in that particular part of the country they've found uh, responding to the government's criteria for a devolution deal uh, more difficult. Mm. But my sense of it is, uh, as much as the kind of internal uh, politics of West Yorkshire, the actually, it's actually just as much the broader politics of, of Yorkshire as a whole yeah. that are kind of holding back that place. And it's much as Paul's just been talking about there, this kind of clash of, well... Uh, actually, the Yorkshire brand, the kind of the, 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 the regional brand, is very, very strong. People feel quite committed to that uh, culturally, emotionally, historically. Uh, and, and in a sense, there's a, there is a, a certain perspective within the area that any deal for, for pushing powers down should be done at that level because, you know, in inverted commas, people recognise that far more than they may do a, a lead city region or West Yorkshire uh, combined authority. Has anyone asked Sheffield about this? 
because they're already out. They've got their own deal. Well, no, it, it, exactly so. And actually, they've they've been extremely effective um, across Sheffield, Doncaster, Barnsley, other other parts of, the, of of South Yorkshire in getting that deal done and coming to a, a, yeah. a pragmatic agreement ultimately that you know we have shared interests uh, from an economic perspective. Actually, there's a, a private sector appetite to see that kind of deal done. Let's get on board together and do it. Uh, and whether it's the particular location or the particular individuals that have, have been involved in that, they've been able to make progress on that at a time when Leeds, Bradford and others haven't. Yeah, and I think, you know, if Sunderland and Newcastle can come together on this, which actually a few years ago we had that suggestion mm-hmm. to us and thought that is not going to happen, then there's no reason why others can't. Because, I mean, if there's, if there's ever an example of two places that have been in a pitched battle for, for centuries, it is, uh, it is Sunderland and Newcastle, and yet, you know, they've managed to strike a deal. Confession time. If you follow this stuff in any way, you'll probably be aware that the Northeastern devolution deal is kind of not happening now. You know, we recorded that conversation at the beginning of September, and at that point, you know, it looked like the Northeast had really sorted it out, and Newcastle and Sunderland had settled their differences. In the weeks since, it's become clear that's not really true. So, yeah, this is present day, John, just cutting in to kind of explain why we're, we're, we're a bit out of date here. But I'm going to use the rest of the conversation because we do talk a bit about uh, the devolution agenda more generally, why we've ended up with some of the regions we have. And I think even if some of it's slightly out of date, Governor the Northeast deal, then it's generally still pretty interesting if you're, you know, you know, for a certain value of interesting. If you're listening to this, I'm assuming you're interested. Before we go back to the conversation, though, I should mention that Paul Swinney, when not being the head economist at the Centre for Cities, is also a writer, and he's produced a book called The Macam Dictionary, which is a, a dictionary of Sunderland slang. He didn't want to mention it himself, uh, because he's quite shy about these things, trying to keep the two roles separate. But if you're interested in learning more about uh, Sunderland culture and language, then go buy a copy. Anyway, let's get back to the evolution. or even the Mayor of the West Midlands for that matter is, you know, these are pretty large areas we're, we're going to be talking about actually, you know, quite different to Greater Manchester or even West Yorkshire or South Yorkshire uh, in, in the Sheffield context. And actually, you know, it, it is just worth thinking through that the Mayor of the North East will be, in a sense, a Mayor overseeing Newcastle Sunderland but also Berwick 
uh, on the borders uh, and huge tracts of rural area as well. Uh, I think there's something uh, like uh, 15, 16, maybe more signatories to the West Midlands uh, devolution deal. You know, these are large, large areas with many, many um, stakeholders signed up. Uh, not necessarily the kind of metro mayor model that we're seeing in Greater Manchester or in, mm-hmm. in London. And there's a whole bunch of kind of cultural and identity mm-hmm. tensions within that. I'm sure yeah. that the mayor will need to manage. Yeah. Well, the West Midlands one, I think I'm right in saying there's two tiers to it, isn't there? Because there's the old, what was once the West Midlands Metropolitan County, which is mm-hmm. Birmingham, Coventry, Solihull, Wolverhampton, Black yes. Country. Um, is gonna, they're all going to get to vote for the new mayor and so on. But then there are non-constituent... Yeah partners which is yeah. the kind of counties and boroughs surrounding it's essentially a kind of pragmatic way through the fact that the, the the local government map of england as it is at the moment is about as far away from where you might design it ideally <laughs> uh, as it's possible to be and so there are some areas which you know are either in other counties but it makes sense from a district perspective to kind of join a deal or not and all of that is being worked through uh, and so that you're absolutely right that non-constituent member status is is one of the ways through that one of the things I find interesting about the North East deal is, 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 Paul, you mentioned earlier, it's, it's kind of a regional deal rather than a, sort of just a, a, a conurbation deal. Yeah. In fact, it covers exactly the same area as the regional assembly, which everyone voted against in 2004. Only this is being imposed rather than... I mean, that's a sort of fun way of going about things, isn't it? So what, what <laughs> is... Was it always inevitable that we got something more that looked more like kind of a region just because of the economic geography of the, the whole of, it, of Durham and Northumberland is, is based on that kind of conurbation? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably partly come about because, you know, Durham and Northumberland used to be split into many different local authorities. And in 2009, they were all brought together. And so now you just have the Northumberland local authority and Durham local authority. I think if that hadn't happened, perhaps you would have had a, a smaller area that you would have had um, Easington to the south of Sunderland, perhaps included, and, and maybe Durham as well, and then to the north, um, was it Cramlington or the local authorities further north there? So the ones yeah. on the fringes of, of the north of Newcastle would have been included too, whereas you know, Berwick and places further north would have been separate. But obviously, you know, the, the, the reality is that that couldn't happen. Um, so they've, they've decided to go for that wider approach. I think it's also in part, um, it's almost like they've taken an approach that actually we're trying to sort of include as many different identities as possible. You know, that's a, that feels more comfortable rather than just having a unit with Newcastle uh, and Sunderland in it, where there's you know, this clearly sort of this, this loggerheads type thing. So they've gone for this broader approach, this regional approach, or everybody gets gets the same. But of course, you know, while that's, that's probably a pragmatic approach, makes sense in some parts actually does make the job more difficult in other parts that we've had people complain about well why Berwick West or far north why are we included in this this doesn't make any sense and clearly the mayor's going to have a, a big challenge on his or her hands as well about managing all of those different identities and being seen to make sure that he's treating everywhere fairly and that is going to be very difficult you know. Berwick I think it's worth pointing out was literally in a different country for about half a century. Well, you know, that's, you know, identity can definitely be a fluid, uh, a fluid concept. I mean, I think the other thing I would add there to, to what Paul was saying, you know, clearly a lot of this comes down to politics and notwithstanding uh, the previous government and it seems now the new government's desire to fit devolution deals, you know, in a way that works for local areas, there isn't, there is clearly a national political imperative to cover as much of the country as possible. And so to an extent, if you can do a deal for the North East or for the Midlands, 
then you are filling in quite a bit of the map. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, the more you kind of break that down or atomize it into individual chunks, then it becomes much more difficult uh, in order to do that. And the potential for opposition to be raised of, well, what about us, um, becomes much harder. And equally, there is a, probably a limit, particularly in the context of Brexit, as to how many deals the civil service can do. You know, each of these take up a certain degree of bandwidth within Whitehall. But uh, can we go back to where we came in? Isn't there sometimes a clash between that imperative and the identities people define for Mm. themselves. So I remember sitting in in the room we're talking in now a couple of months ago and the mayor of Leicester was saying that his city was part of the East Midlands, which is the bit of the country that doesn't fit in anywhere else. And it's, it's, you know, Nottinghamshire, Leicestershire, Lincolnshire and so on. And it's just places that don't really kind of have another identity but are left over once you've defined all the places that do. And doesn't that make it harder to kind of get deals over the line in places that just don't define themselves in that way? I think it does. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's right on the ground. And it actually requires more um, political work locally, therefore, to try and generate interest and engagement and buy-in to what are essentially new structures or new institutions. Uh, and clearly that is, is, is going to be a, a harder piece. I mean, I think if you were to... If you were to divorce yourself from the difficulties of the real world, which is obviously something we can't do, my instinct would always be to try and get a deal done, uh, if needs be, with fewer areas included on day one. Uh, get the deal done that you can, be pragmatic about it. And then there's always the scope further down the line to think about, well, actually, from an economic perspective or from a heritage or cultural perspective, if it makes sense to expand that geography, then you can. If you try and get a perfect first time out, or if you try and include everyone under the one deal first time out, it strikes me that, you know, as we've seen in the northeast, potentially other parts of the country as well, that becomes very difficult to do, and you may not get over the line. The next train to arrive at platform one is the 0750 Northern service to Newcastle, calling at Thornaby, Eaglestock, Allen's West, Seaside Airport, Dinsdale, Darlington. So now in a beautiful act of northern synthesis, we're turning to a figure who is a perennial point of lively discussion and debate in the New Statesman offices, Mr Andy Burnham MP. Andy Burnham, we love Andy Burnham, don't we? He's like such a man of principle and he's just like, you know, he's... He's, he's, you know, he's outside the oh, Westminster right, bubble. All right, all right, let's read the tweets. All right, so as, as you'll know, he's running for the mayor of Greater Manchester. On the, um, and, you know, he should win. Manchester's a Labour ticket. I think he will win. He, he, he could very, I mean, he probably, he should, the smart money's got to be on him. But he does have a tendency to lose. So I decided to ask the internet, um, how do you think Andy Burnham's going to screw up his campaign this time? How is Andy Burnham going to screw up his campaign, according to the internet? Well, um, Skyline's regular Al Storer came up with quite a few. He suggested he could turn up to a hustings in an Everton top. <laughs> when asked what his favourite city is, reply without hesitation, Liverpool. Um, that, that could feasibly happen. I mean, I can see him doing that deliberately and trying to make a joke out of it. and being like, Oh, I hate it when he does jokes. Yeah, he's no good at jokes, is he? Remember when he told Mumsnet his favourite biscuit was chips and gravy? Did he do that? He did do that. I think this is, just as a side note, I think it's an interesting question why Sadiq Khan can do these self-deprecating jokes, but when Andy Burnham does it, you just want someone to push him in front of his dad's bus. 
Andy Burnham's dad didn't drive a bus. That didn't You'd have to push Andy Burnham yeah. in front of Sadiq's dad bus. I just, you, I just sort of ran out of space to it. put words you in lost sentence. It. But yeah, this back is why to, back to, back to this the is tweets. Why I'm never going to be tweets. mayor of Manchester. Al also said he could be overheard discussing the Scouse supremacy master plan with an aide. What? You look genuinely frightened. That was quite. A good, that was a very dramatic look you did then. I mean, okay, which is better, Liverpool or Manchester? Manchester. The thing is, you can do that because you've got the accent, and it's like, well, obviously that's allowed. I'm not allowed to express an opinion. No, don't. I mean, unless it's the right one. They're both better than Birmingham. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now we're going to have a load of Brummies right here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what have you done, John? <laughs> <laughs> Please, I, I probably have more complaints from angry Brummies than any other city. I you, do you've angered the ten people I've, in Birmingham who have the internet. I did once write a piece of the headline, Definitive Proof that Manchester is better than Birmingham. Um, but, that, yeah, but I got it, letters. But it, but it obviously is. That's like when I'm, you know, oh, is Truro really, you know, worse than New York? No, it is. Like, that's fine. It's it's really sweet the way you're kind of helping me share the burden on getting these letters there because I think that I think that will cross the line. That's enough to get the letters. David Whitley suggests that Andy will repeatedly change his mind on whether he prefers United or City. I mean, that is going to happen. It's he, a joke. He's going to we'll turn them all into jokes, and yeah. it's going to be awful. He's no good at jokes. He's probably still going to win, though. You say this, but... Okay, okay, here, here is a way which is plausible that he will not win. James O'Malley suggests the Tories will find someone northern and authentic who will hoover up moderates and leave voters. I think that sounds plausible. It does sound plausible. I still, I just think as a, as a popular figure, he does, you know have that behind him I'm hesitating because I really don't want him to win but alright last but not least uh, Bob Melling says you know how will Andy Burnham screw up the Manchester mayoral campaign he will speak <sighs> horribly plausible isn't it You've been listening to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Stephanie Boland and produced by Royfield Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by CORTR. You also heard We Are One by Vixento. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes or in the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on, we love you for it. Thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.